and and it made something kind of click for me about how a kind of religious commitment could in its way give you the most secular conception of history. Welcome to The Political Animals. I'm your host, Jonathan Cole. I'm a scholar, writer, and translator who specializes in political theology, the intersection of religion and politics. It's a real great pleasure, real great pleasure, that sounds very Aussie, really great pleasure to welcome back to the show a repeat guest in the form of my friend, Dr. Knox Peden. He's an intellectual historian who has taught philosophy and history at the University of Melbourne, the Australian National University, and the University of Queensland clearly only will work at G8s and he's systematically working his way through them. He's got five to go. He's published widely on French philosophy and a variety of topics in intellectual history, including Spinozism and Marxism. And on that note of Marxism, the first conversation I had with Knox was on the topic of cultural Marxism, a very popular episode. So if you haven't checked that out and that's a topic that interests you or perhaps after you've listening listen to this riveting and scintillating conversation and you want more Knox Pegan, uh, Pegan, <laughs> Peden, go back and check out that episode. Knox, with that introduction done, welcome to the show or welcome back to the show, I should say. Thanks, Jonathan. It's nice to be back. I do feel compelled to tell you that I did work briefly at Flinders University, but which is not a GA. Okay. And I had a lovely time there. And I had terrific colleagues and through, you know, matters of circumstance for a variety of reasons, I, I left that position and wound up back at UQ. But yeah, just for the record, you know. Okay. That's okay. That's okay. <laughs> I mean I mean, from my perspective, this is this is this speaks well to you, not not ill. I mean I'm an I'm an elitist, as I've explained many times on the show. I don't work at an elite institution, although I am a graduate of one of the <laughs> G8 universities that you worked at, but I think that's a testament to your intellectual prowess, if I may embarrass you at the beginning of the, the show. Yeah, you have. <laughs> Sufficiently embarrassed. Thanks, Jonathan. The pause says it all. Yeah. Now, just before we move into our, our topic, you'll forgive me, Knox, for just making what I what I describe as the appeal. I do this at the end of the show, which is the kind of culturally traditional way to do the appeal of the podcast, but I know listeners, because I'm a avid and voracious podcast listener myself, do not get through the entire episode of long form. It doesn't mean they don't enjoy it. Sometimes I listen for 10, 20, 30 minutes and really enjoy the podcast, but you just don't have time. So if that's you and you are enjoying the show, but you don't get through to the end, so you never hear me say, please give the show a five-star rating on Apple and or Spotify. Here is your public service reminder and your opportunity to do so. And I'm sure that you will feel at the end of this conversation that it was worth a five-star rating, if I may be so bold to make a prediction. Now, what are we going to talk about, Knox? Last time we had, at the time, I think it was the longest podcast I've ever done. Maybe it is still the reigning champion, and I took out about 20 minutes of it. It went over two hours. I have done a couple of episodes over two hours, but such a juicy topic in the form of cultural Marxism. Now, people will know from that episode that you are a very interesting thinker, but actually you're even more interesting than that conversation betrayed because something interesting about you that did not come up in the context of that conversation is that about four years ago, you became a Christian, not just any Christian, but a practicing Catholic. 
So here you are, you're, I don't know if left-wing intellectual uh, is appropriate or not, you can clarify that in a moment, but you were a classic 21st century intellectual, you've studied Marx, you're publishing, I imagine you're in this milieu of people that are generally on the centre-left, maybe a bit more radical, the classic kind of secular intellectual culture, and then you have chosen uh, the most controversial part of a controversial religion <laughs> to get involved with in a big way in the form of Catholicism. I don't need to explain to listeners why that is a really interesting transition in itself, a pretty unlikely and uncommon transition these days. And I would really like to explore particularly the intellectual side. I know there's a spiritual side, there's probably an emotional side and a, other sides you can go into that to the extent that you want to. But the, the intellectual element is actually really interesting and that will provide a platform for us to have a bit of a conversation about our contemporary secular society and the place of religion in it. So time for me to shut up and hand over to you because now people are dying to know <laughs> how on earth this happened. I guess the first step is to actually set out who the pre-Catholic Knox Pedum was intellectually. So give us a little bit of an intellectual biography up until this moment where your life changed. So how did your in intellectual, what were your intellectual influences? How did you end up as the kind of scholar you were? What was your worldview? Mm -hmm. What was your religious belief or lack of religious belief if it was lack of religious belief? Over to you. All right. Thanks, Jonathan. Lots on the table there to get us started. I mean, one thing to observe right off the bat is hearing you describe it, my own life as involving these unlikely <laughs> developments into controversial areas, whereas to me, it all just seems perfectly kind of natural and seamless and totally likely in, in retrospect, you know. Um, but yeah, I can see how uh, to certain observers, it can certainly look that way. I mean, and that's the thing, too, to be said about a kind of a conversion story is that there are lots of different accounts that can be given of it that don't necessarily exclude each other, you know, and, and the, the version of the events of my life that a sociologist or a psychologist might give would be very different from the one I would give of myself. And, you know, all to say that such things are sort of overdetermined, right, um, how they kind of play out. But um, you did ask about background and sort of what led me to this moment in my life. Um, so you're right, it was just about four years ago that I was received into the Roman Catholic Church. Um, but obviously this, this, uh, this step had been in the making for a while. I um, mean, one way to say it is, you know, for my whole life. But, you know, we went two hours last time. We don't need to <laughs> try to beat that. We can't start with your, the first <laughs> the year of your life. Exactly. Um, but leading up to that, um, yeah, there were a lot of developments. As you said, obviously, there was a personal element spiritual element, emotional element, lots of changes sort of happening um, over the last decade or so. Um, but in terms of the intellectual story, I mean, the, the key kind of background information is that my own scholarship, my own work, my own research efforts have always sat uneasily between the disciplines of history and philosophy. So my earliest education was all in history. I mean, all my, my earliest higher education, like my undergraduate degree, my, uh, then, you know, my honors thesis, and then my master's were all in uh, diplomatic history, which is a very old-fashioned way of saying sort of international history, kind of history of politics, history of international politics. 
Um, and then when I went to graduate school, I thought I would keep working in that area, but I discovered intellectual history and moved into that space. Um, and I was always really interested in the 19th and the 20th century, sort of the late modern period. Um, but one of the things that drew me into intellectual history away from diplomatic history is that I realized that one of the things that made history interesting to me was not the kind of wealth of information one could find in an archive and kind of the research experience and all these things, but thinking more about kind of the intelligibility of the story, like what gives, what makes a historical account intelligible. Uh, you're explaining human action. What is it you're actually explaining? Um, how do you, yeah, how do you account for these things? And I remember the first intellectual history seminar I took was actually not in graduate school. It was as an undergraduate. I was quite advanced in my history degree when I read Hegel for the first time, the great German idealist. And like built into the idea, uh, built into Hegelianism are a lot of different things. But one of the things that was sort of shocking to me was this idea that like history was going somewhere. And I didn't realize that actually this is the more prevalent view, that history is going somewhere, that it has some sort of meaning. Like regardless of your religious beliefs or your ideology, whether you're a progressive or whatever, you have this kind of idea that there's a direction to it. And I was like, and that never even occurred to me. I always thought the history was just one thing after another. Humans screwing things up most of the time, but sometimes <laughs> doing things right. Um, and so this idea that history had a meaning, I was like, oh, that's interesting. And that just didn't square well with the kind of work I was doing in diplomatic history where you were explaining human action in these very kind of localized settings, you know. But anyway, that gave me the idea to kind of be interested in this kind of meta-reflection on what, what history was all about. Uh, so then... In graduate school, I discovered that my interest really did lay more in kind of thinking with these thinkers who are themselves historical thinkers about how they think about history. Um, and that got me really interested in all these different Marxist currents that we've talked about uh, on the last podcast. Of course, and history is a big, big theme in Marxism, isn't it? Absolutely. Like in the idea that history has an intelligibility to it that you might actually be able to suss out, right? And like... Um, make sense of. And, and, and the other interesting thing about Marxism, and we'll probably circle back to this in some way, I mean, I think it's, it's pretty key to some changes in my own thinking, is that in the, in the Marxist view of history, I mean, he famously says, you know, men make history, but not in circumstances of their own choosing. But that said, a kind of dominant theme in a lot of Marxist thinking is that history sort of somehow happens behind your back. That like there are these forces that actually mm -hmm. give history its intelligibility and your action is sort of is complicit with those or advances those in ways you may not understand. A kind of cunning of history idea. You know, but they, all these categories of Marxism, like the mode of production, if you understand this, then you can kind of understand how history is playing out or the class struggle or something. It's like quite that. funny because I'm actually doing a lot of research on the doctrine of providence and its role in Christian political thought for a encyclopedia entry and what you just described just sounds very much like the way certainly Christians for the majority of Christian history thought about providence and its interplay with human activity. Absolutely. So yeah, that very, very clear providential element in, in a kind of Marxist view of history or also in a Hegelian view of history. Uh, so at the same time, when I was getting interested in Marxism, I also became very interested in uh, the philosopher Spinoza. And there was this kind of Spinoza revival going on right at the, at the beginning of the 21st century, um, where people were uh, rediscovering Spinoza as this key thinker of the, in the Enlightenment. Um, for those who don't know Spinoza, I know many of your listeners will, but he was this 17th century uh, Dutch philosopher of Jewish origin, Portuguese Jewish or origin, uh, heavily influenced by Descartes, 
um, brought a lot of different strands of what was going on in European thought at that time together, not just Cartesianism, but elements of Protestantism, uh, Jewish mysticism. And then he constructed this very ambitious metaphysical system, which he just called the ethics, um, that the key idea of which uh, is probably his contention that God and nature are equivalent concepts, that there is only one substance, uh, that whatever you're talking about, there's only this kind of one totality and thought and, and, and extension or mind and matter or just different attributes of the same single substance. Um, and he tried to kind of account for this in this very rationalistic way. And I found this very compelling. I found it a very uh, compelling philosophical system. I wanted to understand more. And I also wanted to understand its subsequent sort of influence um, up into the, our own day. But also I was curious as to why many Marxist thinkers in the 20th century sort of picked up uh, or came back to Spinoza and saw in Spinoza a resource for advancing Marxism. So one of the interesting things about Spinoza, as I already indicated, is this idea that there is an order to existence, that order makes sense, it's rational. If, if Spinoza is anything, he's a rationalist. But the key idea there, too, is that whatever the, whatever the principle of intelligibility of that order is, whatever it is that makes it an order, is internal to it, right? There's nothing outside, right? There's no exteriority. There's nothing kind of beyond this infinite substance, um, whatever it is, you know. Um, and so my research over the next 10 to 15 years in a variety of ways tried to kind of, I guess, test that hypothesis. It was like, does that really work? Um, what does that help us account for? Um, what does that explain about human action, about uh, reason, um, uh, about ethical matters, political matters, whatnot. Like, is this a system that we can actually kind of operationalize and that actually uh, compels us to say, yep, that's a, that's a true account of what, you know, what's going on. Patrick, can I just, yeah. I have a question. Sure. So in. you mentioned that there, you rode a wave of a revival mm -hmm. of interest in Spinoza at this time. Yeah. So this project that you embarked on for yourself to test this hypothesis of this mm. kind of totalitarian is probably the wrong <laughs> wrong uh concept here but this absolute system that yep. doesn't sounds like it doesn't have any transcendent element it can all be explained and is intelligible internally so you don't mm. really need to look outside of the system the system's so comprehensive that that, <laughs> that means the answer for everything sits within this particular uh paradigm if mm. you like uh was this were others sort of interested in this question? Did this make you unique? Were you kind of plugged into a community of Spinoza scholars at this this time? Because I'm, I'm guessing from this, he, he became your major influence for at least for this period yeah. of time. Yeah, there were right. other people interested in it, interested in Spinoza around, but they weren't in my immediate surroundings. And I definitely have that personality trait that like whatever is going on most immediately around me, I'm going to say like, I'm going to look at the thing that's the opposite of that and try to like provoke who's closest to me yeah. or something. Um, and so my like immediate kind of context where I was, I was in graduate school was not, I was not surrounded by Spinozas. If anything, I was surrounded by uh, thinkers or, or, or students and scholars more influenced by another strand of kind of Marxist critical theory associated with the Frankfurt School in which there was always a kind of skepticism about totality. You said totalitarian, yeah. 
totality is a more, let's say, neutral yeah, yeah, term. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Like, sort of, sort of <laughs> skeptical of like Spinoza's totalizing vision yeah. or people that saw in Spinoza's naturalism uh, a kind of um, something that dehumanized us because it just put us in this deterministic system uh, where, you know, it's not us acting, it's substance acting through us. And thinkers like Adorno and others and Habermas and others in that kind of Frankfurt School tradition. So all still in this kind of left-wing Marxist milieu, we're very skeptical of that. So I was pushing back against that, trying to say, no, 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 like thinkers like Louis Althusser, who I talked about on the last uh, podcast, you know, who were influenced by Spinoza. There's a, this is a goer. There's something interesting here. So there was, so it was context dependent in the sense that I was picking the kind of the less the the bad line and trying to advance that or something in the context I was doing my work in, um, but no. But over time, over the years, I found people all interested in this and found interlocutors overseas when I was doing research in France and and all this time. So I spent a long time completing my dissertation, exploring other aspects of contemporary French thought um, that in which Spinozism was relevant. And, uh, you know, through all this time, I was just pursuing my work. And then and then after, shortly after I got my Ph.D., I did wind up in Australia um, in an intellectual history research center at UQ and, um, you know, was finishing up the Spinoza project and sort of started to think about what was going to be next. Was it going to be a bigger Spinoza project? And, and through professional necessity, that's actually kind of what I wound up pitching to the Australia Research Council to get a research grant to keep my career going. <laughs> um, it's like someone said, you gotta write, you've got to you written Spinoza 1, you got to write Spinoza 2. And so I kind of tried to expand the optic beyond the French context and think about Spinoza's significance more broadly. And I pitched a project about secularism and Spinozism. And this was the time when a lot of people were really galvanized by uh, a book that no doubt many of your listeners will be familiar with called A Secular Age by Charles Taylor. Oh, yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. I see you <laughs> nodding. Yeah, this is this is the big stuff. Where in my world, the, this, this guy's name comes up all the time. Right, right. So I, I was kind of interested in exploring, okay, well, does Spinoza have anything to say to this story? Because um, mm. Spinoza is, you know, uh, a, a very interesting thinker to me still because of sort of indeterminate elements in his thought. Like in some ways he's a quite religious thinker because he does sort of think that if you fully understand his system, you'll have this kind of intellectual love of God and you'll, you'll kind of reach this moment of almost a kind of, um, a kind of nirvana or something. He doesn't use that term, but to say that Spinoza is a purely secular thinker is kind of anachronistic and tendentious, mm -hmm. but I, I still was just interested in exploring that. But at any rate, what happened is as a result of my winning this project, I did win a grant to, to pursue this research, um, but I wanted, for personal reasons, to move to a different university to, to be with my wife. Uh, and so I moved the project away from UQ down to the ANU, and which is where my, my wife still teaches and works and does her research. And I, for a variety of reasons, wound up uh, being placed in the philosophy department, um, which makes sense given how much philosophy was in the project. Which is notorious for those who aren't aware, not just in Australia, but globally as just a sort of uh, a really hard-edged ideological analytic type of philosophy, right? I think there was even a Canberra school, so-called, at one Canberra stage. Canberra plan. Canberra plan. Oh, That's okay, it, yeah. right. Yeah. Notorious, some would say esteemed. Celebrated. Celebrated, exactly. No, but what you what you are right about is it it is a very uh, it, it is known worldwide for uh, not only being um, 
a very successful program in what's called analytic philosophy as opposed to so-called continental philosophy. Um, but that even within analytic philosophy, there are certain kinds of tendencies that are associated with this department, like consequentialism and ethics or a certain kind of utilitarianism, although there are exceptions, and, and a certain kind of commitment to, um, like a lot of Australian analytic philosophers, a kind of materialism or naturalism. Um, and also just by nature of the kind of research they were doing, there wasn't at the time that I came there, uh, a very strong historical orientation, um, or if anything, their attitude to the history of philosophy was often like as a kind of storehouse of examples for like yeah. philosophical thought experiments or something for kind Isn't of. Isn't that just a philosophy. truism about analytic philosophy? <laughs> it is. I mean, well, one of the things, one of the things, one of the research lines that I kind of tried for several years was, can can we find some sort of common ground between a historical approach to philosophy and what's going on in analytic philosophy as like a research program? And I've written several things that sort of kind of tried to do that. But what they wound up doing kind of more often than not was actually just using resources of contemporary analytic philosophy to give us interesting ways to think about how philosophy has existed historically or how we interpret it in the past and things like that. But, um, but at any rate, I had a lot of interesting discussions, but I also felt quite out of place. Um, but uh, and just 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 to be explicit about that, because mm-hmm. uh, it's interesting that you referred to the continental mm. traditional philosophy as so-called continental, but that mm. that's the context in which you presumably were doing your research on Spinoza in America and later in France, and you're looking at French philosophers. Mm. I think even non-experts are probably aware somewhat that French philosophy is is in. in many ways the the epicenter or the exemplar of this so-called continental philosophy so you're mm. the kind of continental fish out of water or that's trying right. to swim in in not just any analytic <laughs> philosophical <laughs> context but like the uber analytic right right and that's true and um yes there was definitely something to the extent out of that's context. relevant i just i just thought yeah, that was, no, it's an impo- interesting uh little context. It's important to understand the context. And I remembered, I think it was Bernard Williams who said that, you know, the analytic continental divide is strange. It's like dividing cars into like Japanese and right side drive or something. Yeah. It's kind of like the categories <laughs> don't match up. Yeah, yeah. But it obviously, that distinction speaks to a kind of Anglophone, you know, a UK based like rejection of things continental, you know, or like continental breakfast is too small or something, you know, <laughs> we don't do it that way. We have a more hearty breakfast. Um, but that's also weird because many analytic philosophers come out of Austria and Germany and everything. Yeah. So the whole thing is kind of scrambled, but it really is a style. It doesn't really work geographically. It doesn't really actually work. Yeah, exactly. And that's what I mean. There's just kind of a general pejorativeness to continental when certain kinds yeah. of Brits say that. Not to mention how much continental philosophy is done in the Anglosphere these of days. Of course, yeah, exactly. They, they, they fell in love with French philosophy at one point, right? Exactly. I mean, the better way to think about it for me is that I find that a lot of contemporary analytic philosophy, at least the kind that's done on ANU, at ANU, like really does conceive itself as a type of science or kind of, yeah. if not a science, then modeled on scientific research programs. And it's like, if you go take chemistry at the ANU, you're not going to get the theory of phlogiston like in your chemistry class because that's history, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And where you have, you'd have to do a history of science class to get that. And there, it's questionable whether or not doing trying to understand the theory of phlogiston is going to actually help you understand anything about oxygen. Like it's probably not, you know. And so these philosophers, uh, I mean, again, I don't want to overgeneralize. Like there's a there was a lot of there were different currents there and everything, but there is a kind of idea that like. This is a contemporary research program 
and the history part is merely of historical interest, right? Yeah. It's not like a substantive part of yeah. the of the of the work itself. So that was very different to how I was trained to do things. So, but also what I also encountered at ANU quite strongly was this commitment or a, a kind of conception of moral philosophy that was um, also premised on this kind of naturalism or materialism that tends to lead to kind of utilitarian conceptions of things or uh, another way to say that is like not just utilitarian, but even within that kind of hedonism, like the idea that the good is basically a kind of is equivalent to like well-being or something. And anything mm -hmm. that advances that is, is, is uh, you know, is, um, is the right thing to do. Um, so anyway, this was all stuff that was swimming around, and um, I feel like we're like holding your listeners in suspense. I don't mean well, to. Do yeah, this. Well, that's my fault because I can't. <laughs> I, I, I keep, I keep going at length. I keep yeah. asking probably uh, irrelevant questions, but they're of interest to me, no. and I can't help myself. No, that's good. And so, but to, to get to the next stage from the job at ANU, I wound up teaching at the University of Melbourne in their um, in their uh, philosophy department. There was a, a lectureship there, a junior lectureship there, that was a fixed term appointment that it was required to be an early modern philosophy. And even though the Spinoza I cared about wasn't really the Spinoza of the 17th century, but the one who had an impact in the 20th century, Spinoza was enough to kind of qualify me as an early modernist. And so I spent these years at Melbourne um, studying, teaching history of early modern philosophy and reading more widely in that period. And actually, in a way, kind of like, you know, rebranding myself or re, you know, recasting myself as an early modernist. Because what's funny is in those three years at ANU, it almost was like doing another PhD because I was effectively in a new discipline and mm -hmm. trying to like keep up in the seminars and things like that. And I, let's just say I didn't get so successful at that new discipline that I actually like fully naturalized as an analytic philosopher. But it did open some new career pathways for me and, and it did lead to this job at Melbourne. So I was very grateful for that. But when I was at Melbourne, that's when I was kind of back, you know, reading contemporary philosophy, but also reading the early modern stuff. And this is when... I was just also, you notice I haven't mentioned another book project or another research project. My own research was really quite stagnating. Uh, and I found that trying to kind of continue to push a Spinozist line or a Spinozist Marxist line and sort of being like, okay, this is, this is something I believe, you know, this is what I'm going to advance. I just started to feel insincere. Like I was just not feeling any, that kind of commitment anymore. And one thing I will say that is, um, you know, an ideal at least I took from my exposure to analytic philosophy is that, you know, tribalism really should have no place in this kind of work. It often does, but like it shouldn't ideally. And that just liking a philosophical system is, should not count as like a reason in its favor or something. So all these tensions in Spinozism started to kind of emerge for me. Um, and yeah, so there was that work. There was the work I was doing philosophy of history. Um, I became a father during this period, which is, you know, I think of kind of an important personal context when you're, you're trying to hold the line about naturalistic determinism and you're holding like a newborn in your arms. It just, you know, certain kind of strange credulity in some ways. So that, that was, there was a personal element going on there. But in terms of what I was reading, I kept, I found myself, I kept being drawn to contemporary philosophers who, if they were not Catholic, 
were at least Catholic adjacent or something <laughs> for like parts of their careers. And I, and in, among Anglophone, important Anglophone philosophers, these are people like Elizabeth Anscombe, who's a very important Wittgenstein scholar, but scholar in her own right, wrote some key works on action and intention and moral philosophy. Alistair McIntyre, who is famously a, a quote unquote convert from Marxism to Catholicism, but is still a great friend of Marxism and I count myself very much in that camp too. I have a lot of patience and a lot of time for Marxism and Marxist thinkers. Um, someone like Bas Van Frassen, who's a philosopher of science, um, uh, who had a lot of interesting things to say about the realism, anti-realism debate and philosophy of science and is himself a convert to Roman Catholicism. So you kind of start noticing these things. You're like, why, are the pe- why do the people I like why are why are they all Catholics? You know, like what's happening? And then you just kind of read more and more. And um, and then on the French side, there were plenty of thinkers in that context too, thinkers like Jean Luc Marion and others. But I mean, that in a way was kind of less striking that there would be kind of esteemed French philosophers who would who would be practicing Catholics or in in, in that milieu. Can I just ask for context mm-hmm. uh, up until this point where you start engaging more with Christian philosophers, yep. albeit, so this is not theology, they're, they're doing philosophy. Mm-hmm. And you find that actually they've got something really interesting to say and you notice a pattern that that a lot of these, particularly Catholic uh, philosophers, are speaking to you in some sense. Mm-hmm. Had your intellectual journey and your professional career up until that point being rather irreligious that that is would Mm. would most of your colleagues have not being religious or not being christians was religion never really was it did people largely ignore it or did they take a generally a marxist attitude towards or interpretation or understanding of religion i mean where where did that religion Mm. issue and christianity specifically feature in that intellectual milieu that you were reared on up until that point? That's an interesting question. I, and a lot of ideas or a lot of memories sort of come to mind. Um, in my graduate school education, looking back on it, I can, I can conjecture that a lot of my colleagues in the history department uh, may have had personal religious commitments of some sort. I mean, especially studying early modern This is Europe. America as well. So. Yeah, it's in America. But I mean, I just remember like, Studying the Reformation, and, you, and there are all these people I knew doing PhDs that had something to do with the Reformation or the counter, Counter-Reformation or something. And it was there. You know, probably these people had, you know, skin in the game, so to speak, on the Reformation. <laughs> um, but I kind of wasn't really aware of that. You know, like I, by this point in my life, uh, belonging to one of the to a religion, to a faith tradition was not a live option for me. Like I just wasn't thinking about it that way. And then though, but I, you know, I was doing all this work and all, all this stuff on European intellectual history at the time that kind of, you know, the Schmidt revival, the Carl Schmidt revival got underway, obviously mm-hmm. something you know very well. Um, and so there was a lot of talk about like political theology, people taking theology seriously. And, and in fact, I was always kind of allergic to this, like the, especially in the French context, you know, Derrida in his late years got, became wrote more about religion and there was a kind of pathos to this stuff that I really didn't like. At this point I was like, I'm a hard edge materialist from the enlightenment or something like I don't have a lot of time for this. And so that I think is a kind of cliche of conversion too, that I was one of these people who kind of had, you know, 
an allergy or contempt for any kind of wishy-washy mysticism or anything like that. That just wasn't for me, you know. I was a rationalist for crying out loud. Like, so. So um, were you some kind of atheist at this yeah. stage, or not even interested enough to? going to labels. <laughs> I probably wasn't an, the only reason I wouldn't say I was an atheist was because I like was I was sensitive enough to the ambiguities in in Spinozism. Like is Spinoza an atheist? That's an open oh, yeah, question. Yeah. A lot of people will say he is and that was all just smokescreen that stuff about God, but he was really just an atheist. And it's like I don't think that's true actually. I don't think that's yeah. philologically tenable. Um so I, that was the only reason I wouldn't say it. And also because I thought the new atheists were gross. Like I didn't really like what was that whole scene? Yeah, um, that really was a scene, wasn't it? It really like, was. Looking back, it yeah, it was that a moment. Was interesting. Yeah, it was a moment. I mean, look, I I thought a moment where a handful of people sold a lot of books. Exactly, <laughs> and I thought Christopher Hitchens could turn a phrase, and I was and I was and remain still very impressed by uh, Daniel Dennett's book Darwin's Dangerous Idea. I think it's a very interesting book, but generally, I just didn't like that, and. Um, yeah. So, so I didn't, I didn't identify as one way or another. But the, mo the the best thing to say is it just wasn't a live option, right? I wasn't. I mean, I was always. I, I can see that I was always a truth seeker, but it never occurred to me to like actually find the take truth seriously in, in the Bible. Yeah, or something. exactly. <laughs> find the truth in the Bible, exactly. Um, but I also I had a lot of friends and scholars, and I did know a lot of people uh, who worked kind of at the intersection of Jewish thought and or uh, not intersection of Jewish thought, but in in the history of Jewish thought and Jewish philosophy where I would say kind of the line between what counts as a secular text and a sacred text or, well, not maybe a sacred text, but generally the line about your commitments is a little blurrier. You mm -hmm. know what I mean? And like there's debates, endless debates about, you know, Walter Benjamin is a 20th century thinker and like what was the meaning of his Judaism to him, you know? Whereas I think if you're looking at Catholic thinkers in the 20th century, it's like, well, they were... They're either a Catholic or they're not, yeah, or they're a yeah, lapsed Catholic yeah. or they're a practicing Catholic. Like it's, it seems more like there's more of a distinction. Um, but don't you find it interesting that with a lot of these historical figures where there's ambiguity about their personal beliefs, Darwin himself is a mm, case mm. here and there's, and the evidence is incomplete, but tantalizing in a way. So, mm. And often seems to be contradictory mm -hmm. or intention. But the thing I find interesting is that so many contemporary scholars are uncomfortable with the ambiguity mm -hmm. and want to cleanse certain figures of their religious beliefs or claim a kind of uh, religious clarity that's just not there in the the evidence or possible from the evidence. And, and I don't know what to make of the fact that people can't just accept the ambiguity and both sides make a truce and say, look, during this enlightenment period, a lot of the thinkers seem to have some kind of religious belief, but it's difficult to say <laughs> exactly what it was. It may not have been particularly orthodox. It interacted with other factors going on in their life. It may have evolved or de devolved mm -hmm. over the course of their, their life. And so it, it's a complex picture that we can't fully explain. I mean that just describes the normal state of human human beings, doesn't it? But absolutely, scholar. I guess I guess you could say there's a, a there's a kind of ideological dog in this fight, right? With mm -hmm. some of these figures about claiming or 
disbanding yeah. them. I mean, there's that, there's that, but there's also the what you know, E.P. Thompson famously called the enormous condescension of posterity in a different <laughs> context, which is like this idea that like, oh, if they only had all the resources that we have now, they obviously wouldn't have been Christian or they wouldn't have been a believer because we now know, you yeah. know, all this new evidence that just undermines it. But you know, Darwin was doing the Darwin was doing the best he could with what he had or something. You know, yeah, like yeah. they'll make some sort of story about what. Um, to borrow a phrase from Marx, kind of extracting the uh, rational kernel from the mystical shell. You know, that there's like something in there that we can carry over yeah. um, and leave the the dross behind. Um, so, yeah, that's definitely that, that. And that was something, again, I always had kind of an allergy to. Um, so, yeah, I, I did start. So I was reading these Christian philosophers. But the other kind of context to bring this back to the beginning of the story is at the same time that it was dawning on me that the Christian philosophers or the philosophers that were attracting me all had some sort of relationship to Christianity, I realized that um, a lot of the historians I most esteemed uh, were Christian or Catholic. Um, uh, like people who are very little read today, like an old uh, diplomatic historian named Raymond Sontag, who wrote really good books about diplomatic history kind of between you know, the Franco-Prussian War up to the Second World War. Um, who was a very devout Catholic. And I think that, you know, I was sort of like, okay, well, what is it about his worldview that makes his, his how, obviously it shapes his historical writing in some way, makes it compelling. There are others I'm trying to think of, uh, and now it's been a while, but, uh, you know, um, Paul Kennedy would be another historian. I mean, I don't, I'm, he's obviously still alive. I have no knowledge today of how intense or not his Catholic commitments are, but, I, you know, I, I knew he was a, a Catholic historian and and I was like, okay well these these historians like what is it about their their work that sort of attracts me and I, so I started reading more in this kind of tradition like okay and I discovered that there is this tradition in the 20th century of Christian realism that like Reinhold Niebuhr is mm. really associated with Herbert Butterfield is associated with and um, these were thinkers that I kind of knew about or had read a little bit of, but I started to read more and more. And I said, okay, well, what is it about Christian realism? What kind of unifies these historians, these political thinkers, these philosophers? Like, what do they have in common? And it, it, it all amounts, in my view, to kind of a neo-Augustinian conception of history and humanity's role in it. And, of course, the categories that would be central here or the central category here would be sin, something mm -hmm. like original mm -hmm. sin as a, as a way – to, as a key concept for understanding history, which at this point, for me, history is not some special thing that needs special treatment, but is just the entire record of human behavior, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. And I was like, okay, well, how does this work? So someone like Raymond Sontag doesn't seem to have a philosophy of history. Um, someone like Paul K Kennedy does, insofar as he's got this whole thing about how great powers rise and fall and stuff. But if you're like looking at human action, you know, what is it you're really trying to explain? like kind of what's going on. And I notice that all of these thinkers with their Augustinian commitments are able to kind of not trouble themselves with having a philosophy of history that gives the whole thing its uh, kind of the whole story, its intelligibility, because that's just outsourced to an area we don't know. Like you, you, we have, you know, uh, beliefs about, you know, we have religious, we have faith in some sort of idea of a kind of ultimate end, but when we look at what's going on in history, we are not, we do not see our action alone as being the thing that sort of will accomplish that end. And and I know you're, I think you're more across the Augustine scholarship than I am, but it's like the stuff I was reading about the city of God and sort of the context for that book and 
this kind of idea that it was kind of a heresy to know where history was going or to kind of read the signs is like meaning that you know God's will and how that's working now. And, and it made something kind of click for me about how a kind of religious commitment could in its way give you the most secular conception of history, like where you're not having to, your, your history is not compromised by being just a, a, a show that like plays out this thing behind it. All this must sound very counterintuitive to the non-Christian because you're like, oh, well, no, isn't the whole point of Christianity that history is just this kind of playing out of this theodrama or something? And in a way it is, but insofar as this perspective allows you to see history as just this array of human actions, some of which are good, most of which are bad, just as it kind of plays out, kind of gave me a new way to start thinking about this. And even at this time, I was like, oh, that's really interesting. I'll be, I'll be Augustine adjacent. Like, that's interesting. But I obviously can't have those full commitments, you know, because I just frankly didn't have them. Yeah. Um, but I was very sympathetic to this kind of work. Um, and then I read something, Spinoza somewhere sort of begrudgingly concedes to Augustine, like doctrine of original sin, even though he thinks the, the kind of the, the, the theology behind it is untenable. Um, so anyway, this was all kind of going on in my head. Can, can I just, yeah. j- just something worth mm-hmm. teasing out here, I think, is this neo-Augustinian, as I think you described it, mm-hmm. conception of history, or even if that's not the right term, uh, I take it that you have um, become aware of the significance of this category called sin in terms of Mm -hmm. history, historical development. Obviously, it's the total sum of human behavior, although there's also natural history and the geological history and and the like, cosmic history, perhaps. But I'm particularly interested what was it about that discovery that either challenged or was problematic or helpful for your existing more Spinozian Marxist view of history? You've you've kind of uh, dangled in front of us that you were some kind of materialist mm-hmm. during this period. So, so it's a way of teasing out what your what your actual view of history was before your encounter with this particularly Christian view of history and was it that it challenged your existing view or did it help explain gaps? Like what, talk me through that. There's a lot there. Yeah. God, there's a lot to be said. Um, I mean, I remember kind of, this is, you know, foreshadowing, right? I remember a talk a long time ago, like 10 or 15, maybe 20 years ago, not that long ago, 15 years ago, by a good friend of mine, a collaborator of mine who, uh, is a big fan of Rousseau. And this was like at the peak kind of like Schmidt revival. And he gave some talk where he's like, I just want to say that, you know, I have no time for Schmidt. I'm a Rousseauist. And like, basically what I mean is that I think people are essentially good. And like anything that, and what accounts for corruption are kind of extrinsic factors or other things. And if you can just kind of, solve the problem of the arrangement or the extrinsic factors, um, then people are good. And I remember at the time, I was like, that's that's not right. (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm not sold on that. And like, I had no grounds to think that, you know, but I was like, that just doesn't seem right. Um, And so, I mean, why it becomes important for history 
it's okay. You read. I'm reading these Christian realists who are historians. They're also in dialogue with international relations theorists. This is the time of the Cold War. They're all writing. Um, obviously, a, an essential premise of Marxism is that if you kind of correct these structural factors, if you get the arrangement right, then you will have a kind of heaven on earth or something. Although, as you know, every Marxist apologist will tell you, there will still be conflict. It won't solve everything. You'll still have a division of labor, maybe. Oh, whoops. Like all these, all these caveats. But still, the idea is you get the arrangement right. And you then make, you're going to... Then you get progress. Yeah, then you get progress. And you're going to kind of solve the error, right, of humanity. I think the key thing there is that, that you can engineer progress through uh, fixing the environmental factors. And you don't have to really even think about human nature because it's not relevant. Exactly. And so, but then, so in the context of a total kind of secular philosophical worldview, at least in my, from my European philosophy perspective, it's like, okay, well, what are the kind of rival views? It's like, oh, the Nietzschean like will to power is actually going to always undermine that. Or, you know, Darwin's survival of the fittest is always going to undermine that. And I started reading things that would kind of say, oh, you know, we used to call this sin, but now we know it's just the will to power, as if that's like any less metaphysical concept or something. <laughs> or like, we used to call that sin, but since Darwin, we don't worry about that anymore because we realize that the competitive drive is actually just explained by, uh, you know, the competition of genes and like mm -hmm. scarce resources or something. And the historian in me, the intellectual historian in me, who's really sensitive to kind of concept usage, was like, that's that's just rubbish. Like that these are not the same thing at all. Like to say that 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 survival of the fitness fittest is like a secularized notion of original sin is just like, yeah. like it's non it's like a non sequitur. And the fact that like a scholar could like write that um as if these are at all the same thing, um, I was like, that just doesn't that doesn't account for anything. So and then the other way it kind of becomes important is, as you said, there's the idea of getting the context right or getting the environmental factors right. But then it's like, okay, in all these secular outlooks, who's responsible for doing that? Okay, we are, right? And I'm like, okay, I'm starting to detect there's something kind of circular here. And then you start to realize that with the loss of the concept of sin in the kind of moral vocabulary of for accounting for historical action or human action, you also lose, to my mind, the concept that essentially goes with it, which is that of grace, right? Mm. And what I found is like you have all these secular attempts to have a secular notion of sin in like survival of fitness. Fit, I keep wanting to say survival of the fitness, which is another scourge. You know, <laughs> people thinking that if they can just get their fitness right, they'll be happy and healthy, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, that, you know, things will be okay. But there was no, there's no secular correlate to grace. What are you going to call it? Luck? Like, what are you going to say? Fortuitousness? Like, fortune. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Fortune, I guess. But it's like, ju it just wasn't there. And I know this is all pretty abstract, but where I kind of, I think what kind of shifted me, kind of dislodged me from the attempt to stay in this kind of Spinoza's Marxist frame to take seriously uh, Christian thinkers and the Catholic tradition, and that's a whole separate thing, which we can get onto about why Catholic specifically, um, was realizing what I might call the inadequacy of self-sufficiency, mm -hmm. right? So if you think about like the Spinoza system as a whole, like infinite substance, right? It's like the idea is that the system, the world is self-sufficient, mm. right? It, its principle of intelligibility does not come from outside it. So anything that is going to uh, correct or, 
or help it or, or the norms that are going to guide it have to come from within it. Um, and there's an analog there, as in all kind of theology, you know, or, or, or a lot of philosophy between the kind of meta big picture and then the, the conception of the individual. Because I mean, like, what is one of the kind of unassailable goods of our day? It is the whole idea of autonomy, like the idea of like self-sufficiency, right? That you're bootstrapping yourself. Like there's all these different ways we talk about, um, you know, finding the means to, act to actualize ourselves, mm. right? As if that is the ultimate good. And then what becomes the ultimate bad is anything that stops you from actualizing yeah, yourself yeah, yeah. and expressing yourself. And so all of this, these dominoes kind of started falling, if that's the right metaphor. You know, I, I was like, okay, so it got me thinking about dependence, right? Like if, I, if, if I'm not truly independent, if like what happens to me depends on something else, and I, very clearly it depends on others and other people, mm -hmm. it depends on other things. Um, then, and Spinoza and some thinkers will, um, people who are listening to this podcast who are big fans of Spinoza are going to be like, that, 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 that. Spinoza also doesn't, <laughs> doesn't go in for autonomy of the individual. We're all dependent on each other. But at the meta level, still Spinoza says, okay, but the totality is kind of independent. There, and to me, it just became unsustainable that that had its intelligibility within it. And I was like, well, okay, maybe there's something else. You know, and that's it. That's you know, just just the the crack, like in mm -hmm. your naturalism or in your materialism, um, is you know kind of the you know the the kind of letter opener that kind of gets in there, you know, and starts to open things. Um, so that's what started to happen, right? Intellectually, like okay, well maybe there is other stuff. And then I start all the thinkers that I used to be have just kind of knee jerk hostility to. I started to kind of understand a little bit more, um, like what they were saying. Like a good kind of a good way to kind of illustrate this. This is very recent. I'm, I've been reading um, Emmanuel Levinas. Do you know who's yeah? yeah. Levin, Emmanuel Levinas is a 20th century Franco-Lithuanian um, uh, philosopher, uh, also Talmudic scholar, who uh, I've heard about for years, and I've had a lot of strong opinions about for years, uh, of whom I'd never read a word. Right. <laughs> um, a couple things. I've read a couple of his essays, but I'm in this reading group where we were discussing him the other day, and I, and and he has this whole idea, his most important work is called Totality and Infinity, an essay on exteriority. And I was like, God, what is exteriority? Like, what does it even mean, exteriority? And I was really trying to kind of understand it. And he has this very, like most French philosophers, very difficult or mode of expression. But then I kind of, the pin dropped when I understood that the ultimate, the, 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 most, the most worldly example of exteriority for someone like Levinas is another person. Um, so if I'm looking around this room right now, the only thing in this room right now that is exterior to my consciousness is your mind, is you. Like, because I can see everything else, I could investigate everything else, and as soon as I touch it, see it, sense it, whatever, it's part of my consciousness. Mm -hmm. um, it's continuous with my consciousness. But the thing that is not continuous with my consciousness is your consciousness. Mm, mm. And so that is, quote unquote, exterior to my consciousness, right? But I believe it's there. I infer it from your speech and everything mm. you're doing and saying. And so that's at a kind of an interpersonal level how that would work. And then, you know, I haven't finished the book yet, but I think Levinas probably goes, you, you go all the way with that idea to an absolute exteriority, which you infer is there um, or that is in some sense related to 
or is separated from, but has a conditional relationship to the world, right? Basically just kind of accepting an outside, the reality of an outside. And that was something that I was fighting for years not to do philosophically. So that's the beginning, right? I mean, that's, well, that's the end. How long are we into this conversation? But that's intellectually <laughs> how you like get to this idea that, okay, okay, maybe I'm actually open to this tradition in an authentic way. By which I mean Christian thought, uh, yeah. Catholic thought, you know, yeah. Not just in the kind of, oh, let's mine it for what we can find valuable in it or something. And, so this yeah. all makes sense intellectually. And it's mm. interesting how you operated within a particular system of thought for, for a considerable time. Mm -hmm. And you're not just a layperson. You're writing books. You're teaching. You've embraced mm -hmm. this uh, Spinoza and Marxist mm -hmm. materialist view of the world. In some ways, you I I know it's we can overgeneralize here, but from speaking as a Christian, you're kind of well and truly inside the kind of typical secular mm -hmm. left leaning intellectual mm -hmm. um, context, particularly in philosophy uh, departments these days. So that that all makes sense intellectually. But of course, you could have just adapted your worldview to incorporate some Christian elements. And in some some ways, you could argue this is what happened with the Schmittian uh, revival and scholarship. So you have a bunch of people who, in my view, have no idea what theology is, have not actually engaged the 2,000-year-old <laughs> tradition of theology. But they realized that, that, that there was... There was a kind of a je ne sais quoi that was missing in our, the story we told about sovereignty and liberalism and a bunch of other stuff. And they, they thought theology, there was something in this theology. Uh, again, going back to Schmidt's work, who famously said that all uh, political concepts are secularized theological concepts. That was his big idea. Didn't exactly elaborate extensively on it, but that opened that door. So that, but these people aren't, these people haven't become. They're not at mass and they're not doing <laughs> confession and they didn't become uh, Christians because of Schmidt. All they've done is integrate, all they've done is start playing with the category of or the concept of theology in what's still to someone actually um, educated in the theology like I am is still pretty much a secular political form of political philosophy or legal theory. Uh, often you find Schmidt scholarship. So the question, Ox, is... Why do you go to mass every week? I know you do confession. I know you're you're like a legit practicing <laughs> Catholic, and not just any Catholic, because because there is this progressive modernist type um, part of the Catholic Church. You could have easily, in some ways, that would have been the wouldn't that have been the logical kind of step for a, a someone with a bit of a Marxist background? You've got liberation theology that that emerges in that Catholic. Context. There's there's loads of Catholic thinkers that that are kind of uh, acceptable, just to put it that way, in intellectual circles, more progressive intellectual cir circles. But you've gone gone completely to a more orthodox, traditional kind of Catholic uh, practice. And I emphasise the word practice here. You went all in. Mm. So well, why why how did this intellectual turnaround lead to this life turnaround? Well, there's, okay, well, one thing to be said just for clarity is uh, 
if there's one thing that Marxists, if there's one group that Marxists kind of sneer at, it's progressives. You know, the, the, okay. I know that from a certain perspective, it's like, Elaborate. oh, That's you're, interesting. Yeah, you're Marxist, you're on the left, you should be like with the progressives. But the kind of Marxism that I felt closest to was um, one that really put kind of class conflict at the center of things and a very like, kind of stayed in the kind of economic horizon and realized a lot of or, or treated a lot of cultural politics um, as kind of ersatz or something like a distraction from what the kind of real Not the real the issues of economic sort of inequality or, or things like that or, or you know I use the term injustice as like kind of a strange uh, place in, in Marxist thought. Um, I mean, so look, one way to say this is I'm just like a sucker for orthodoxy, right? So I really liked orthodox Marxism when I was Marxism. And now as in, so, as a Christian, I'm attracted to the kind of orthodox model. But there is a little bit more to it than that. But you want to say I just, that, yeah. this, this is very, I, I do want to hear the next bit, but that, yeah. this is very intriguing. So it sounds like you were similarly positioned in your Marxist context to what you are in your Catholic Christian context. That is, you you were, uh, I mean, could you even say you were at the more conservative end of Marxism in the sense of trying to stick to a more traditional earlier form of Marxist emphasis on class conflict in the context of this cultural change where the progressive movement has decided class is no longer important and it's all about race and sexuality and gender? Well, I mean, that came up in our last podcast. And so then you've gone yeah. into the Catholic yeah. side and you've gone back straight back into the more traditional. Oh, well, look, I have a theory that Althusser is Augustinian, man. Like, you know, that there's a, there is some sort of there is a, a, a continuity uh, or at least I would say an analogy, because, again, they, it's not it's like sin and survival of the, of the fittest. These are different things. But um it's true that the kind of version of Althusserian Marxism that I was really interested in trying to understand um, and only kind of ever lukewarmly like advanced, I was just really kind of inter interested in it as an intellectual problem, was one that didn't have a lot of faith in the, in the masses to like achieve some positive outcome anytime soon, even if you kind of towed that line sometimes. There was um, rather the kind of philosophy of history and the structural conception of history that mm -hmm. he was working with was one um, that, it's funny, he didn't use a discourse of original sin, but didn't have a lot of faith in kind of the capacity of spontaneous revolt. In fact, he had a lot of harsh things to say for the mm -hmm. 68ers in France and things like that, and the kind of youthful exuberance of the students. And and so I was I was attracted more to that, a kind of um, almost a kind of pessimism. Like It's like the opposite of uh, Gramsci. It was like optimism of the intellect, pessimism mm -hmm. of the will, you know. Um, I think part of the problem here is that on the right, including yeah. on the Christian right, yeah. there is only one form of Marxism that's this kind of monolith. Yeah, no, and there's a lot of different it's not particularly yeah. textured or historically accurate. It's yeah. not, not attuned to the different schools and the tensions and the conflict and, and the fact that Marx is interpreted by mm. those with the ist after the name Marxist. Yeah. Yeah. Obviously, that, and they should know this from from Calvinism and Augustinianism and uh, Barthianism, that any great thinker spawns lots of different streams because right. they're, they're liable to interpretation. The more my, my observation is the bigger the person, the more interpretations you get because it just becomes pure arithmetic. So sure. that it, the giants are, uh, are, end up becoming more contentious because you've got more human beings looking at them and humans are always going to, they don't think like uh, in unison. 
Yeah. No, that's true. Um, I mean, again, yeah, about the optics or the distance from which you look at a tradition is going to uh, shape how homo homogeneous it appears, you know. Yeah. Um, and so certain things I'm going to have more fine grained views on than others. But but to come back to this point about, OK, why would I you're like you're a Marxist. Why wouldn't you go more progressive or whatnot? I mean, to be honest, I have to say that I I kind of bridle at the use of sort of political adjectives to describe anything that has to do with uh, the church. Like, even though, as I say that, I am well aware of the like political reality of the church and the fact that this language is used within the church mm -hmm. and outside the church, left Catholics, right Catholics, all the progressive Catholics, you know, reactionary Catholics, like whatever. Catholics. Yeah. What's that? Conservative Catholics. Conservative Catholics, exactly. Traditionalists. Traditionalists, exactly. I'm, that Latin this mass. Language, yeah. <laughs> but I mean, well, traditionalists, I'm like, okay, okay, there you're kind of moving away from a, an explicitly political adjective. I mean, the problem is you start using these adjectives that are very temporally bound and have to do yeah. with the kind of uptake of categories coming out of the French Revolution and then applying them to stuff today. And and so for me, like, to, to, as a way to get back to your, to your question, to me, one thing about that kind of positive step into being a practicing Christian again and becoming Catholic was, to me, it was a step away from kind of political ideologies uh, and the idea that religion itself was a vehicle of kind of political action. Uh, I mean, to a critic or to someone who's totally skeptical of everything I'm saying, it could just sound like escapism or something. Well, um, I was going to say, was it, was it in a way a refuge for you Yeah, exactly. to well, find... Yeah. Uh, something beyond the political or outside of the political where you'd, you're in a highly politi politi politicized kind of intellectual environment, right? Yeah, well, the, it also, you know, and also it has to do with that change of horizon. Like what I was saying before, it was all very abstract about the world having an outside. Like once you open that, then you're kind of open, open that idea or you, you actually entertain that idea. You're willing to kind of explore what are the various ways for sort of thinking about that. And, you know, a lot of the other traditions are, you know, I'll put it this way. I, I've always had a kind of uh, aversion to vagueness, right? Like, and, and so the idea of just saying, like, agnosticism never sits well with me. It's like, oh, yeah, there's something out there. Call it God if you want. Call it nature. Call it the universe. You know, people say, oh, the universe is giving me a signal or something, yeah, you know. Yeah. And to me, I was always very skeptical of this language because I, I can always detect I can't always detect, but I, I, I find that I'm like alert to when people use agential language for non-agential things. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. it's like, well, if the universe is talking to you, then you're saying the universe is, has yeah. a mind and is like a person and is like it's, interacting with you. It's an anthropomorphization. <laughs> Close enough. That's oh, right. Exactly. Horrible word. <laughs> yeah, you know exactly. what I mean. Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. But it's like, but then what's funny is, yeah, you spend all your years in a, you know, criticizing that move. And then you realize that that like Christianity is literally the story of an anthropomorphic. <laughs> exactly. So there you go. And I did it's that like, to you then. <laughs> yeah, it becomes a, you know the God is a person. Or and yeah. so so anyway, okay, I digress a little bit to come back to but the see, question. But see, the whole the whole the whole distinctive of Christianity is that the to use Greek an anthropisi. Yeah. Uh, you know the inhumanization is that God actually becomes a human. Yeah. And so that, which is really distinct from using the language of humans, which we do with AI, which I'm also researching at the moment. We do it with biology. Scientists do this all the time and don't seem to understand 
the philosophical implications of the language. And it's it's really like a good, good example with AI is we talk about AI learning, but of course there's no real sense in which an algorithm can learn because learn is, is, learn is, is something we use not exclusively for humans. You can use it for chimpanzees, dogs, but it's a it's a an actual um, animal, mm-hmm. and so you've you've always got to be careful with this sleight of hand. But of course, you know conceptual sleight of hand because the the meaning can't be actually what it, what it is. What you're talking about is so for AI, I, I like to think of it more as improvement or refinement. But it's not actually learning in the sense of a child in a in a in a class. But it's interesting that we maybe it's to do with our subjectivism so we, we can't get out of this mm-hmm. anthropomorphic language <laughs> it seems yeah. to me when we're talking about the natural world and the universe yeah and i mean and th- well that's a whole other but christianity actually does it, it does that it yeah. doesn't skirt around this it puts it at the center of exactly uh, so i mean there's a lot to be said i mean look we could do a whole other episode on ai or, right let or me like, stop this one and we'll just start another yeah exactly <laughs> but i mean i'm interested in that too that you know people are are very impressed with you know, chat GPT and these kinds of things. And it's like one of the things, one of the, uh, some of your listeners will kind of recognize this distinction between like the signifier, like the word or the letters and something that is merely in the shape of the word and the letters, the shape of the signifier. And the thing that's still happening is that, you know, this computer program is just putting letters in order in the way that they are, Mm -hmm. where it finds them, where it detects them all over the internet. That is not reading. That is not thinking. These are, it's just arranging. It's not even writing in the sense that we have traditionally used that term. Exactly. So, but the thing that's interesting is that, but if you have a very naturalized conception of mind or a materialist conception of mind, then you might be tempted to say, oh, well, we're not even really thinking. That's just a fault concept. Mm -hmm. Or like, we're not really reading. That's just a fault concept. Yeah. Um, we're actually in some way closer to what this is doing, but we just do it at this rate that like we don't understand. So anyway, so obviously at stake in these questions have to do are issues about the uniqueness of the person, um, what kind of stuff there is in, in, in the universe or outside the universe and whatnot. Um, uh, I introduced that digression. You, uh, you, you were supposed <laughs> to be explaining how you went from this intellectual transformation to this life transformation oh right and so you actually become a sort of active member of a catholic parish somewhere right i want to get i want to get to that um and you can edit this out if this doesn't work but the uh the other interesting thing to observe about you you were talking about the unique stake or the uniqueness of christianity has to do with god becoming a person um one other thing kind of going on in the background here and this is really esoteric but I was really struck by how a lot of these radical French thinkers that I was interested in, who were close to Althusserian Marxism, uh, psychoanalysis, Lacanian psychoanalysis, all became these kind of radical Maoists for a while. And then a not insignificant portion of them went on to be scholars of Islam, like in France. Wow. And uh, I thought this was interesting. And... Um, in my own kind of like reflection on it, subsequently, I was like, oh, they had this um, interesting kind of take on the kind of Lacanian triad of the symbolic, the imaginary, and the real, which is like the Freudian triad of the superego, the ego, and the id. But obviously, you can already detect it has kind of a Trinitarian structure where like 
the symbolic is the law, that's the father. The imaginary is like the ego, the person, like that's like the son. And the real is like the id, or it would be like the Holy Spirit, kind of the relation among all the things. And it was interesting to me that a lot of the thinkers that started to become scholars of Islam were the same thinkers that when they were Lacanians were really interested in sort of taking out the imaginary level and it all just being about the symbolic and the real and that kind of so the law and whatever the kind of foundational kind of like or whatever the id is. Um, and I was like, well, that's quite interesting. Whereas for me, in that context, I was like, what about the imaginary? What about the image? What about the ego, the person, uh, the representation, uh, the the emissary, the thing that is sent that represents the, the symbolic or something? I know it's all very esoteric, but like one of those things is like, oh, well, there is kind of a, a Trinitarian structure there. And theologically, it was just interesting. I know you know a lot more about Islam than I do. I barely know anything, but like, except for what I've read by, from some of these French thinkers. But I just thought that that was yet something else that made me genuinely interested in what was specifically Christian about mm -hmm. this take, mm -hmm. about this kind of view of things. But that gets me to it. It's going to get kind of to an answer to your question. Yeah. Well, I want to know how, how you actually find yourself physically in a Catholic church. <laughs> I, so what I didn't, what was not acceptable to me, and I guess it's still not acceptable to me, is the idea that there is some sort of essential truth content to Christianity that is explicable in terms of some more kind of foundational sociology or metaphysics or theory of history that kind of explains where Christianity comes from. And of course, anthropologists, sociologists give all kinds of accounts of religion and like what function it serves and like mm -hmm. why it might have emerged in the history of humanity. Um, but to me, I took very seriously this provocation that I think comes from like C.S. Lewis and mere Christianity or something, which is like the idea that if you don't believe who Jesus is, who he says he is, then you should regard him as a madman mm -hmm. that and you shouldn't be listening to anything he says. Um, because if you read the scriptures and you read what's actually said and the claims he makes on his own behalf and on behalf of God the Father and, and whatnot, then, yeah, th these are the ravings of a lunatic if it's not true. And so the idea that like, oh, he was still this great moral teacher or like, look, it happened to um, set up this kind of moral framework that's still useful. Uh, and we can just take that. But. Um, subtract from it the theological content and then it still holds or it's still binding on us, that was something, that was an idea that I didn't find persuasive or compelling. And so th this is, this, so I'm feeling, I guess, this kind of temptation to Christianity, if you can call it that. And initially I started, um, this is also while I'm at the University of Melbourne, but I'm commuting back and forth from Canberra. Initially, I started going to a Presbyterian church because that's what I knew. Uh, I was baptized uh, and confirmed Presbyterian when I was 12 years old. Uh, my family was not particularly religious, um, but they obviously they didn't object. Uh, there were a lot of churchgoers in my community, so there was nothing kind of yeah. strange You're about from, me. From Texas, just yeah. for people's background. Yeah, from, uh, from Texas. That's right, from Dallas, Texas. And so there was nothing like strange about me doing that. Um, it just happened to be that my family, my parents, and weren't particularly religious. Um, 
And so I did that. It was very meaningful to me at that time in my life. I, it was, I had nothing but positive memories of that time. And it was just for a variety of reasons that I just went away, you know, um, from any kind of observant Christianity for reasons we've talked about now ad nauseum. Um, but I started doing that. And then, um, but I kind of still realized, I started, was already, I, I, I realized that the thinkers I was interested in were not just Christian. They tended to be Catholic. Um, and other things I was reading about the history of the church um, made the, the Catholic church more uh, seem compelling to me. Um, apostolic succession, things like that. Um, and then, but then it, it was a personal experience. Uh, it's ab absolutely relevant here. This is that we went back to France on a research trip um, and I wasn't going to find a Presbyterian church anywhere like very nearby. And so I just went to a mass and I hadn't been in a long time. I, you know, I'd, I'd been to a mass before, but I hadn't been in a long time. And it just, Something about it, um, I felt initially a kind of a revulsion, to be honest. Like you, the smells and everything, I, I didn't like, but, but but I did like. I, and I, I don't, I'm not sure how uh, appropriate this analogy is. It's almost kind of like your first cigarette. It's like, oh, it's disgusting, <laughs> but I should probably have another one. But then you become addicted. Uh, yeah, and then, and you, you want another one. And, and so I kept going to masses while the, during this whole trip. Um, and there was, and the experience of being back in Paris and realizing all the churches I'd kind of walked by without ever noticing and, and discovering that this place I'd, I'd lived for two years, a hundred meters from the remains of Blaise Pascal, like, you know, things like this. I, I was just kind of in the grip of a very kind of saturated Catholic place, um, in Paris and then when I came back to Australia, I was like, okay, well, I, let me see what's going on with the Catholic Church here. Um, and uh, through a variety of steps, I, I met a local priest and wound up doing what's called the RCIA program, which is the Rite of Christian, Christian Initiation for Adults. And because I was already baptized, that didn't, I, didn't, I wasn't going to be baptized again. Mm -hmm. um, but that did lead toward a, a confirmation in the church. Um, and I, I did take some time, you know, I did, I did the courses and, 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 you know, let Easter kind of go by and, and, uh, wasn't received at that moment, but, uh, later in the year. So this is now 2019. Um, I sort of had this moment where I thought, look, I'm struggling with this. Um, but I let me struggle inside the church mm -hmm. instead of outside the church. Um, I was just sort of prepared to to make that struggle step. inside with every other believer instead exactly. of being on your own outside struggling <laughs> exactly and to realize you know that doubt is, is an essential part of faith or however yeah. you want to you know all the ways you want to frame that or i think it's cardinal newman or saint newman now says um something like you know a thousand questions but never a single doubt or something like yeah. but however whatever whatever however that works for you i was like, well, let me just take it in into the church but then the other thing that did that was important to me um and I mean, I mentioned apostolic succession and things like that. Um, but I was also uh, persuaded of the importance of the sacraments in the Catholic Church. Mm. And I, I, a lot of your thinkers, a lot of your listeners will know about what's significant about that. Um, uh, but for those who don't, it's just the idea that, um, at least in my, my perspective on it, um, in a lot of Protestant churches, you know, you're there before the word of God, you're, you're hearing the word of God, you're praying, you're singing, um, and all this great stuff is happening and Jesus is there in whatever way that's intelligible to you, but, but that's it. 
Um, whereas in the Catholic Church, there is this idea that this full conviction of the presence of Jesus in the sacraments, you know, the yeah. Eucharist, uh, sacrament of marriage, holy orders, baptism, confirmation, all these things, um, all the sacraments. And so the sacramental reality of the church mm -hmm. was something that I was keen to participate in, right? So that's one of the things that really drew me then into the Catholic Church. Do you think in, in some ways the type of paradigm, for want of a better term, you found yourself in intellectually, which is kind of really big, total, big themes, in some ways made you best suited to the, the Catholic Church, which I would describe also as the, the biggest, most systematic, overarching. Whereas obviously in Protestantism, you get a, it's a very individualistic and, and you're only ever in a sort of part of Protestantism, let alone part of the church. And obviously we have a divided church, no matter which part of the ecclesial family you're in. But the, like <clears throat> when you think about the, the claims and or beliefs of the Catholic Church, depending on where you sit in relation to it, I, I, can, I can, like listening to your story, I can see the match there in, in a funny way. Like in some ways, Protestantism just wouldn't have been big enough for you, right? At the ecclesial. Oh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> look, if, uh, if you're a history nerd, philosophy nerd, whatever, like, yeah, you can spend centuries, like, yeah, exploring the, the you know, the his, all the rooms of the, of the Catholic Church. Uh, <laughs> there's a lot there in that history. That's right. But the other thing I remember is kind of funny is I remember a friend of mine um, who uh, <laughs> I was talking to through this whole, whole time who was raised Catholic, not practicing today. Uh, but he was like, he noted that I kept saying, well, you know, I just don't know, you know, like I, it's still hard. Like I, I'm not sure or whatever. And he's like, you're being way too Protestant about this. You're like <laughs> waiting for like a lightning bolt mm -hmm. and you don't understand that Catholics just submit to the authority of the church and go to the liturgy and like, that's it, you know? Mm -hmm. And it was all kind of in jest what he was saying. But one thing I did realize that was continuous with a lot of my philosophical inquiry was whether it was in Spinozism or whatever I was kind of working on, there was this kind of through line where I was always um, skeptical of claims to authority based on experience. That like your experience of something is what vindicates for you the truth of something. Um, and not to overgeneralize about my Protestant brothers or anything, but there is this kind of idea I had that for a Protestant, like you need to have this kind of authentic experience of like the mm -hmm. indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Or so there is a kind of conversion moment or something where you you breathe the Holy Spirit in or something like something happens. Right. Yeah. And the authority of that experience then changes you for life. Mm -hmm. Now, I, I, I believe that happens. I believe that the Holy Spirit does things we don't understand or, mm -hmm. you know, uh, but what. I came to kind of recognize as a continuity there was Catholic faith or faith is not necessarily an affective thing. I mean that with like an A, right? Like something that you feel mm. like it is more mm. an act of will. Mm -hmm. um, and it is and the submission to the sacramental economy of the church and all this stuff is bound up with ideals of humility and realizing that you depend on something else or you don't know. And so a lot of people think, oh, you know, so this is just another truth system. Like, look at you, like Spinozism, Marxism. You're just interested in like just move to the next ideology. Yeah, exactly. You just like authoritarian, like truth system. <laughs> and it's like, but for me, like I take very seriously all the stuff about, you know, mystery. 
um, the mysteries of faith and the idea that you don't understand and the idea that you don't know and the idea that God's will is in an ultimate sense inscrutable in the sense that you can't like read it and then know it, but that's what makes it faith, right? Is that you have faith in something that you don't know. I mean, and there's like, you know better than I do, Bible scholar. There's like scriptural statements of that. You know, we don't hope in the things we can see. Um, you know, so that concept of faith, that idea was very, um, was something that I was interested in nurturing or, or growing or seeing if I could acquire, you know, through a, a sacramental participation in the church, right? It was, was part of the appeal or the effectiveness or the comfort or the whatever mm. positive term you want to put on it in for you in Christianity, was it giving up this pursuit to be able to explain reality in some comprehensive way from the vantage point of a material human being inhabiting a material world? Was it to break out of that Spinozan, Spinozan whatever it is, system and say, look, I'm going to rely on God and I can't explain <laughs> A crap load of stuff. Yes. <laughs> and I'm giving up the pursuit and then integrating that into your life through practice. Because I, I take your point that you know, faith, faith is multidimensional really. Mm -hmm. So one expression of faith is just turning up every Sunday in mm -hmm. the face of doubt and mm -hmm. tiredness and not wanting to be there, feeling awkward, whatever. Another form of faith is uttering statements that you know might elicit a negative response or people might tease you or think you're funny or taking certain actions, certain decisions that you're nervous about or you're not confident about but you feel called to 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 do. I mean, in some ways, marriage is an act of faith as well, isn't it? Because there's no guarantee that 20 years later you're still going to be in love or that circumstances haven't made the marriage difficult or or whatever. So I just I just asked the question and then made a digression. I can't even remember what it, what it was I asked, but hopefully you remember. It was about that. That's right. About the. You know, I just want to understand what, what Christianity gave you that was missing right. in your Spinoza and Marxist the, life. The way you framed it was this kind of giving up on the yeah. the totalizing explanation uh, and. Um, the need to know, right, or the need to be right or something like that. Now, you can ask my proximates, people close to me in my life, whether I have actually given up <laughs> this, this impulse, and they will all tell you no. But at least I'm aware of the struggle now in a way that I wasn't before. I mean, one way to frame this nicely is a thinker I've already mentioned is Pascal, like the relationship between Pascal and Spinoza historically or conceptually, like how you would kind of contrast them, is that, you know, Pascal as a neo-Augustinian, like, his whole attitude is giving up on that desire to know. Like for him, the desire to know is just another iterate, iteration of our like sexual depravity or something. It's just like concupiscence, right? The mm -hmm. desire to know, mm -hmm. the need to know. Um, I found that very compelling that there was something um, about, that there was something um, domineering, uh, you know, all the, uh, something proud. I mean, the, the key sin being pride, like the need to, to, to know or to have the answers. Um, and that all the problem, all the ways that that could corrupt you. And I mean, the other way to think about this is to go back to the man himself, Augustine. By the way, one of the consequences of my 
becoming a practicing Catholic is that apparently I finally say his name correctly now. I've been saying Augustine, for Augustine, <laughs> Augustine for years. Right. And it's like, no, no, no. <laughs> Serious people say Augustine, apparently. Yeah, yeah. But um, no, but I was reading a classic biography of Augustine the other day by Peter Brown. Incidentally, a very important book for Foucault, another thinker dear to me. Um, but he, he he describes the moment where Augustine goes from his Neoplatonist moment after his Manichaean years, and then he goes into a Neoplatonist phase before he becomes fully a Christian. And the way Brown kind of narrates it is that as a Neoplatonist, Augustine was really convicted of the idea of perfection, that if he just thought the right things and did the right things, he might be perfect. He might achieve this kind of sage you know, kind of level of contentment because he would be perfect. And look, it's no accident that Spinoza is often called a Neoplatonist, like that there is mm -hmm. a kind of that element is in Spinozism too. But that his kind of tumble into Christianity or the, his kind of collapse into it, however you want to describe the momentous thing that is Augustine becoming a Christian, was giving up on that ideal of perfection or at least realizing that he could not be perfect. And then, of course, this is something he struggles with the rest mm -hmm. of his life in the you know, volumes he writes trying to figure things out. But the struggle is there and the kind of awareness of it is there. So that was something that really um, drew me. Uh, yeah, that, that, that kind of, I don't want to call it a break or something, but because there was no like single moment or anything. But mm -hmm. like that transition or that transformation and my thinking about those things is quite important. And you mentioned this idea of faith, like a marriage is a good model. That's a wonderful model to think about this mm -hmm. stuff. Um, and it's another good example of like not relying too much on the authority of experience, right? Because you're having a bad day, like don't put too much stock in that. You know, it doesn't undermine the reality of this ongoing thing that is your marriage or this mm -hmm. institution. There's a philosopher who I, I don't know personally at all. Um, named Lara Buchak, who writes about, I don't know how, if that's how you say her last name, I apologize if it's not, but she, um, she writes about uh, faith and rationality and things like that. And she uses an analogy of the kind of faith we have that like our friend is going to pick us up from the airport. You know, it's like we don't know that for sure, uh, you know, but you have faith that that's going to happen. And if they're not there, like before you like freak out and like call them or send them a message like cussing them out, mm -hmm. you look for them, you assume something else happened like and that that kind of faith is very real. Um, and I always thought that that, that analogy of hers was a, was a good one. It kind of explains what it's like. I think her idea is that at some point, like what faith means is there's a point at which you stop looking for more evidence. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then and also you kind of remain recalcitrant in face of counter evidence because yeah, you have kind yeah, of made yeah. this commitment. And as a description, I think it I think it's pretty apt existentially kind of, of what it's like, because I think faith, I think a lot of people want that to be experiential or affective yeah and obviously it can be you can have you know enchanting moments at a mass or something yeah. or you know in prayer but yeah i like that definition of faith because it highlights that all humans are faith creatures mm -hmm. whether you're a materialist an atheist a christian because mm -hmm. in order to live you have to just reach a point where you stop considering looking for new evidence and where you don't spend hours and days chasing down every bit of counter evidence. Mm. Like every Marxist at some point settles with the system. Now they might wrestle with different questions and here's a bit of a problem here, but 
they all have faith in in being a Marxist at some point, which is I've, I've reached some conclusion about this system of thought and I'm going to either teach it or I'm going to work for the Marxist revolution or be a historian but apply a Marxist lens or whatever. Like when, when you think about it, the, the difference, the distinction isn't actually so important. Well, not not as it's not as, as significant as it first looks. That's that's a, I'm really glad you brought up that example because um, to stick with the hero of the podcast now, Pascal. Uh, a lot of your uh, listeners will be familiar with the idea of Pascal's wager. Like one of the things he's most yeah. famous for is this idea that you know um, you can if you're going to bet one way or another, God exists, He doesn't exist. Those are the two options, and the yeah. two outcomes are. Uh, uh, contentment with God or damnation or nothing at all or yeah. something like that. That's more than two. So but, you uh, can't lose if you bet on God. That, basically, the idea is that, yeah, if you're you're wagering wisely, you should. I mean, I think – and there's a lot of interesting literature about how Pascal's wager actually works. I was just reading something the other day about how he's not trying to give you rational grounds for why you should wager that there is God. He's trying to say that actually rational grounds is not the way to think about it. Like mm-hmm. this is not how the thing works. But still, the point about Pascal's wager is that the thing you're wagering on is something you are not going to know directly in this world. You're not going to see. Uh, I mean, you will encounter via the mediation that is uh, the Eucharist or Christ or however you want. I mean, I don't want to get into like theological hot water by saying something wrong here. But like the Pascalian idea still is that whatever that thing is you're wagering on is something that is beyond this world. Now, it's very interesting that a lot of 20th century Marxists tried to adapt the Pascal's wager to like kind of explain their own political action. There's a famous book called The Hidden God by Lucien Goldman that's like about Pascal and Racine and sort of adapts the wager idea to the Marxist mm-hmm. wager on the future. It's, yeah. and, and it's kind of like this idea that like, oh, we don't, we're not going to see it in our lifetimes, but we act in a certain way because we have every confidence that in acting in this way, we're acting in accordance with the ultimate tendency of history, which is communism. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can see similar things with uh, kind of the ethics, I think, of how a lot of people act with regard uh, to climate change. It's mm-hmm. like, oh, I'm not going to see the results of this. but I And I may not actually believe that like whether or not I put this little tiny thing in the recycling bin or that bin actually makes a difference. But I still conduct and comport myself in a way that is wagering on yeah. this reality. But those are – this is where I'm like – this comes back to my like sin and survival of the fittest thing. These are different things like wagering on something that is within Mm -hmm. the totality or the temporality, the narrative, the narrative of this world of human experience is not the same as wagering on something which by definition in the very premises of the wager is not ever going to have the direct experiential evidence of it Mm -hmm. here. Mm -hmm. Um, And to me, that's very important. And that's very important to understanding like Pascal's neo-Augustinianism. Is precisely that it's not of this world, mm-hmm. right? Um, the thing that you're wagering on. Um, so yeah, maybe that's a digression, but I just think, but it's to take your point about the kind of, you know, using these religious schemas in our political life. And this gets back to the point, you're like, how did you wind up in a mess? Like, why would you go all in? And for me, it's like, I, w- I kind of came to this point where I was like, I don't want to adapt Christian mm-hmm. ideas to my worldly secular life, I want to live this faith, mm-hmm. right? Um, and fortunately, 
the Catholic Church gives you pretty clear guidelines on that. Um, mass going, you know, yeah, yeah. Uh, ways to participate in the sacramental economy of the church. And if you're going to go all into Christianity, Catholicism, and maybe Pentecostalism in some way, it, that's the best way to go all in because it, I mean, Pentecostalism's that's very experiential. So that obviously was never going to be your, your cup of tea. And that's whole, it's a bit messier and less, mm. less disciplined. But here, Catholicism, and I should just say for anyone who's unaware, I'm not a Catholic my, myself, but um, the Catholicism to me is a bit similar to Islam, not in its actual theology, but in that it, it offers you a system of practice uh, which actually can allow people to believe what they believe in some ways. But the the unity of the church works on this kind of practice and it does it does is predicated on a certain view of all authority. That's why the ritual is efficacious and it, you've got the apostolic succession, it goes on and on and on. But it's a totally different logic from what you get in in most forms, not all, but most forms of Protestantism, where what you actually think and say and how you live outside the church is what matters. Mm-hmm. The stuff in the church is is kind of more like a community event, tea and coffee with with friends, with a little bit of a <laughs> a bit of Bible and singing and stuff. But mm-hmm. in the Catholic and really Orthodox tradition, the actions really taking place in the liturgical life uh, of the church, mm-hmm. and that that is very appealing, particularly if you're looking to. Uh, find a refuge from <laughs> this what I've, I've, always, I've always thought is a very onerous and burdensome pursuit to try and you know the the solution to everything has to come from the mind of a human being or collectively from human beings i mean i was raised in a christian environment so sin sin for me was was the air i, I breathed not not that mm-hmm. we're all sort of at each other's throats but i i, I was i imbibed that doctrine mm-hmm. very young particularly in a kind of evangelical with its Calvinist roots uh, context. So I can, I've always understood the appeal of the system, even though it's not for me. Um, Yeah, that's well said. I mean, one way about the the significance of the liturgical life of the church, right? Uh, And if you get too kind of philosophical about this, you say, well, isn't the liturgy an experience? Like, are you back to the authority of the experience because you're going to the liturgy and whatnot? But I mean, there is a, an evangelical element to Catholicism yeah. in the sense that, you know, the Eucharist, the grace you receive from receiving the Eucharist at Mass or even hearing just the word of God at Mass is supposed to be something that you carry with you out into the world, right? It's the idea it's kind of like a petrol station where you like fill up or something you know, <laughs> and then you go dispense grace to other people. But as we know, this, but then you come back to, the, to this kind of idea that like, of course, you don't ever know that, like, and that the workings of grace are in a way beyond your kin. Like, you're not, you don't know what the ultimate end is. You don't know how that's mm-hmm. going to play out. You don't know how some action of yours, intentional or unintentional or only like minimally intentional is going to have some effect. This is this kind of workings of grace idea. This mm-hmm. beautiful passage from Pascal that John Updike puts it as the epigraph of Rabbit Run, where it's like motions of grace, hardness of the heart, external circumstances. These are like the three things that like explain or capture the human experience. So, um, so there is sort of very much that idea. But I, I do. I was going to say like, I don't like the introduction of these kinds of differentiations within Catholicism 
with any kind of connotation that anything is like more or less Catholic because mm-hmm. it's progressive mm-hmm. or orthodox or yeah. anything like that. The whole point of the Catholic Church is the, is as you've indicated this kind of universal yeah. structure in which the you know everyone participates and, and receives these dispensations. Um, but I also to come back to this intellectual humility idea. I think it is like really important that we don't know what is really going on in the hearts of anyone who receives communion or what the effect of that yeah. is and what's going on. And I read this account the other day by James Wood, this like literature scholar um, who, like many moderns, you know, finds uh, the substitute for religion and his experience of literature. Uh, but he was doing this review of this Gary Wills book on Augustine. And he was talking about, oh, I remember when I was a kid, you know, we'd go to mass and and I would see these ladies up at the front who I'm sure were all angels. And they were like crying, being penitential, like it just looked racked with guilt. And I was like, this is impossible. Like these women are sinless. Like, and it's like, well, how do you know that? You know, like yeah. that's a strange kind of impulse for you to be like, well, I've seen their behavior, so I know they're without sin or something. Because then that gets you into this territory of like thinking you start separating the sheeps and the goats. And it's yeah. funny, I read this review and then I saw there was like a letter to the editor that where someone had the same point. So naturally I felt vindicated and then very proud and then guilty about that. But um it captured for me something that was very attractive still about this kind of Catholic Christianity, that kind of, which I think in, in, in obvi- is obviously is often honored in the breach by practicing Catholics, but this idea that you don't know, you don't yeah, know what yeah. the workings of grace are. This is actually, uh, interestingly, a Calvinist idea as well. And he spoke of the wheat and the chaff. Yeah. And so you get both in the church, but because you don't know which is which, then you don't, everyone's welcome, and it's not for you to decide uh who is wheat and who is chaff, and you just proceed on. And that, that's one of his many... Calvin, to me, is actually best on ecclesiology, which mm. might sound... <laughs> I realise I'm saying that to a Catholic. Well, look, no, but I am weird. obviously a but, Pascal sympathiser, and he was a Jansenist, yeah. with, which the Pope thought was Calvinism. Basically, actually, smuggled into the church. Calvin's yeah. widest, uh, wisest thinking was actually on the church. And, and that... If you, if you ask for you know what what is what is perhaps one of one of the leading reasons why I am a Protestant for sort of similar but in in adverse sort of reasons of conscience and I have, have thought a lot a lot about this and I've done a lot of investigation of Orthodox theology for reasons some listeners may be aware of uh, you know it's I find Calvin's ecclesiology really compelling I don't find much of his other theology actually compelling his political theology is 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 really problematic for a whole bunch of reasons although he was a man of his uh time and in some ways his political theology was very catholic being a scholastic legally trained uh (laughs) baptized catholic as the first generation of reformers or were it's it's kind of like you can't can you take the marxism out of knox peden you can't (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> there's there's an underlying Catholicism in in Luther and Calvin and this first generation of um, reformers, which is not hard to explain. It would be odd if they, growing up in this Catholic milieu and being educated in Catholic institutions, in Luther's case being, being what was he a Benedictine monk or whatever, whichever one it was, Calvin trained as a lawyer in this kind of Catholic context. So obviously it's in there. And perhaps that's a bit of a segue to what I, I think is a an interesting final question and and that is i was actually going to go here until i just digress myself into the segue and that is 
whenever it comes to conversion stories, I think we could call this a kind of conversion story. We could quibble about the definition, but we mm. at some point we have to leave things to grace, as we said. <laughs> um, a person never fully sheds, in my view, uh, a practice or a thought system or a cultural context or a background or a family experience or, you know, you can't get rid of your temperament. You can sort of amend it, so to speak. And so particularly when you convert reasonably late in life, well, not late in life, you're in your 40s, but like that's, it's not a young conversion, which is when most people convert, you know, teenager, early 20s mm -hmm. at, at uni. So is there a sense in which you're a kind of Spinozan Marxist Catholic Christian? How, what, in what way you said on a, on one, once or one or two occasions there that you know you still have a lot of time for Marx or elements of Marxism. Clearly, you've not only done a lot of work on Spinoza, but I, but I imagine you haven't rejected. I don't get the sense that you've completely rejected his thought um, in toto. So I'm just interested in how, and you are, you know, knowing you, you're a kind of unusual Christian in that you've come in from this very high intellectual position that is not the norm. Mm. And lots of people try and get there through theology, but you, you kind of came in with this very sophisticated intellectual history thing that has been on display here and in the former podcast. So I just wonder what kind of Christian are you, do you think? And in, in what ways Marxism and or Spinoza are still a sort of part of who you are? And, and, I, and I understand this point of how you didn't want to just take some Christianity and adapt mm -hmm. it to the system, but nor, um, nor can you really reject it or expunge it completely, right? Absolutely. No, I mean, I, I uh, absolutely not. I mean, there's, there's that providential answer, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, we, we talked about providence earlier, which is the idea that I kind of can't renounce anything that led me here, mm -hmm. you know, and, and they were all kind of steps along the way, you know. Um, and in, in other words, if you hadn't have, embarked on this journey to understand Spinoza and Marx, you may never have actually found your way to, you may not have had a dam for a crack to appear in in order to food. Exactly. I mean, and, and there's a way in which that just sounds like glib apologetics, I think, to someone who doesn't share that view or someone who doesn't have that kind of, um, who I guess puts no stake in something like Providence, right? Um, but more sort of prosaically or mundanely, I, I would say that, I can't renounce any of it because all of it was, God, this doesn't sound prosaic and mundane at all. It sounds ridiculously high-minded. It was like all kind of a, a, a search for truth, yeah. right? To, you know, the classic title of Malebranche's treatise, The Search for Truth, you know, that there was something in my whole adult life. I've, I've been a scholar or I've been reading, you know, and trying to understand some, understand history, understand philosophy or something. And so there's a kind of orientation to truth um, or uh, a desire for it, right? Um, and I think, you know, the irony is like giving up on the idea that I could ever possess it is one of the ways that I found it <laughs> or began to sort of start to live it in a different way. Um, and again, you know, this may just sound like apologetics, but there is a Catholic idea that I'm sure it's shared by other other Christians, but this idea that the world is God's creation, 
And the world is good. Um, it's corrupted by sin, by our actions, but the world is good. And that goodness can be found anywhere. It can be found in Marxism. It can be found in Spinozism. <laughs> like it can, it, it, it's there, you know, and, and, and so a lot of things can lead you a different, in all these different kind of directions. Um, so that's why, yeah, I don't renounce anything. And even if you have like a, you know, where the Calvinist and the Jansenist, you know, can kind of meet up or something. I know you're neither a Calvinist and I'm not a Jansenist, but it's like this idea that um, there is not, if not like, it's a, if not a strict determinism, there is this idea that it kind of all matters and you can't really, yeah, you can't really take any of it back. Mm -hmm. Like, and it is, I mean, you can play this game in your own life. Or what That major life decision, what if I'd taken that job instead of that job? What if I'd done this instead of that? You know, what if we started a family then instead of then? But it's like, it's just silly. It's like a parlor game because then you just wouldn't be you. Like this wouldn't be, it wouldn't be your life. It wouldn't be your family. Um, and so, yeah, kind of, I guess, finding living in that space between a kind of moral responsibility for your own action because you, as you become more aware of your sin and so you want to, you know, conduct yourself rightly, mm -hmm. doing that the best you can with your own will, but realizing that it's not totally up to you um, and kind of trying to live in that space between these two kind of imperatives to live freely in a way that you think is uh, accords with the way God or the way Christ wants you to live. Um, and then realizing that you're not totally in control of what's happening around you or in, even in you, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that that too is something that that kind of Catholic Christianity, I think that's something that that kind of both and element is very strong um, in the Catholic Church. That's something that drew me there too. Knox, you've been on a fascinating intellectual and spiritual journey <laughs> so far in your life i'm really grateful that you uh agreed to share it with me and my listeners i found it fascinating i trust other people found it fascinating too certainly different from your you're certainly in my world in the protestant world from your i haven't heard uh someone get up to give a testimony that <laughs> that involves spinoza and marx and pascal and uh uh you know, materialism and metaphysics and um, this kind of stuff, but certainly up my alley and I really enjoyed it and I'm keen to see where your journey goes from here. So thanks so much for the conversation. Thanks, Jonathan. It's my pleasure. <laughs>